Well, today we are going to wrap up a series of messages that we have been doing for the last four, this week makes five weeks, and we've been calling it the worthiness of God, and we've been looking at the worthiness of our God, both as we see it in the book of Revelation, and then last week we expanded the conversation a little bit, and we looked into Matthew chapter 24, where we saw the singular worthiness of the Lord Christ, who alone is able to look into the future and to tell you not just kind of, maybe sort of how something's going to happen, but exactly what's going to happen And then with the power of God Himself, for He is God, He brings it to pass. And it is stunning. So we're bringing this series to an end today, and I know that it's uh, kind of asked a lot of you, hasn't it? I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but the sermons have been a little bit longer than usual. Have you noticed that? I'm sure that's escaped you. (laughs) Didi said, yes. They've been longer. They've been more technical. They've been weightier. They've been heavier. They have asked a whole lot more of you than normally they do. And I've appreciated the extra effort, the extra coffee I know that some of you have had to drink. But really, and let me tell you what I have most appreciated. I've most appreciated the spirit that you've brought to this study. Because I've been coming to you with a different kind of view, haven't I? And oftentimes I've said to you, I know this is new to you, but it's not new. And this is an issue, the talk of the end times is an issue that Christians tend to kind of dig their heels in, you know, and they sort of get in their fighting stance and they put their dukes up one against the other, brother against brother, right? And we divide over this. We kind of categorize ourselves and we say, well, you know, if you're not a pre this or if you're not a post that or if you're not an ah this or if you're not a pre-trib, you know, pre-mill, pre then you're over there and I'm over here. And I've told you from the very beginning of this that my heart is one of unity. My goal is to generate light, not heat. And most of you, I think, have been hanging with me. I mean, I've got a lot of good encouragement. You know, I've had a lot of people come up to me and go, hey, man, this is so cool. And Revelation now all of a sudden makes sense to me. And I always wondered about this. And this fits here now with this. And all the pieces have come together. And I see sort of what it is that you've been saying. I had two people who really know the Bible well come up to me and use the same word last week. They said, I was riveted. There's the word, okay? So I was psyched. And then five minutes later, I had somebody say, man, three minutes into the deal, I had no idea what you were talking about. So so I know it's a mixed bag, okay? And yet you're here again. All right, one more reason. These are hard messages. This one in particular, because when you come to the end times, what do you have to deal with? You have to deal with judgment. Images of judgment, the reality of, well, judgment, and you have to do it in balance. That's the struggle that I've had with this message today, because today we're going to talk about judgment. You're going to hear Jesus talk about judgment. You're going to hear Peter talk about judgment. I'm going to tell you all about judgment. We're going to deal a lot in judgment, and the weight that I've been feeling, the tension that I have felt all week is the heaviness and the weight of that, but I want you to feel the heaviness and the weight of that. I think that Christians, and for that matter, the world at large, need to feel the weight of that. We don't talk about it because it doesn't feel good, but you need to feel it in balance. You need to feel it with the balance of knowing that the grace of God is greater than His judgment, that by the mercies of God, 
like Noah of old. Through faith in Christ, we float above the waters of His judgment and we're safely transported to a new world. So the way I'm going to wrap this up this week is this. I'm going to ask you three questions, then I'm going to answer them, so don't worry, you don't have to sweat over this. But really, I mean, I just surveyed the last four weeks. I said, okay, these are the three questions that I think that need to be answered before we bring this thing to a wrap. Question number one, so what is coming next? I mean, what is the chronology of events, Tom, that you think the Bible teaches that is going to occur between today, right now, as we sit here or stand, and the day that Jesus comes, bringing with Him the end of the age? What is it? Because if you've been with us for the last four weeks... I've told you repeatedly and in a variety of different ways that I don't think the next thing that's going to happen is that the Lord Christ is going to return. He's going to rapture us up in that day, and He's not going to come bringing judgment. Please hang on to that. You've got to watch the judgment. But instead, He's going to take us all away. We're going to miss all the suffering that goes on in the world for a literal seven-year period of time, seven years taken out of a book called Revelation that is almost completely metaphorical. It's images, even the numbers. And then he's going to return again, and this time he's not going to come most of the way back. He's going to come all the way back, and when he comes all the way back, that's a second return, by the way, he's still not going to bring judgment. But instead, he's going to set up a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom from the city of Jerusalem, and for literally a thousand years, another number taken from Revelation and interpreted literally. He's going to reign, and then at the end of that, there's going to be a battle, and he's going to put down all rebellion, and then finally he is going to bring judgment. He will finally bring judgment a thousand and a seven years after he comes the first time, and a thousand after the second. I've told you throughout, and I've tried to do this respectfully, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches, but that is what so many of my Christian brothers and sisters who I lock arms with and go to battle with for the kingdom of God believe, love them, respect them. They're awesome people, but we disagree on this. So then what is the chronology of events? If it isn't that, what is it? Question number two, what do you do with the rapture? Because you have to account for that, don't you? I mean, Paul speaks of that. So Tom, what do you do with that? Question number three, it should sound familiar to you. I've asked it pretty much every week. So what? So we've just had this great academic conversation, or have we? I hope not. What do I do with all of this information? How should this impact me now? How should I now live my life as long or as short as it may be from here on out in light of the information? Let's start with question number one. What's next? What's the chronology? And I want to go back to last week, to the very end of what Jesus said to us last week. Last week, He talked about three things. You'll recall, He talked about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and then he talked about his second coming and the end of the age. And listen to his language. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour, what day and hour? His coming and the end of the age. Of that day and hour, of the day of my return, he says, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. That's significant. But the Father alone. Throughout history, there have been people who have predicted the day. And the day came and went. And then some of them predicted another day. Oh, sorry, we missed it by 10 years. And that day came and went. And I just want to say to folks who want to predict the day, the year, the month, the decade, the century, 
if the father has not shared it with the son, I don't think he's going to pass it on to you. I just don't. So he's not going to tell us the day. But he gives us some information. He says to us, in a sense, if you want to understand the world that you live in, the times that you live in, the chronology of the events that are going to occur between now and my coming, my one coming, my one coming, he says, you need to go back and look at another world. Follow what he's saying. He's saying, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And then he says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like what? What days? What time period? The days of Noah. For as in those days, which occurred when? Because it's hugely significant. Before the flood. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until when? Until what happened? Until the singular day that Noah entered the ark. And if you know the story, and the Lord God shut the door. Until the singular day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand, until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, I'm not going to give you the day. I don't even know. But if you want to understand how this world is going to play out between now and the end, well, then you need to go back and look at that previous world, at that world that everybody knows the creation story for. It starts in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know the story. And it ends in Genesis 7 with the destruction of the world in the flood of Noah. What Jesus is telling us, and what Peter's going to tell us in a minute, is that the pattern for that previous world that began in Genesis 1 and ended in the flood of Noah in Genesis 7 is the same pattern that our world follows. Let me give you some examples. If you know the story of both of these worlds, they're creation stories. They're both born out of water, are they not? Not only are they both born out of water, they're both born out of water as the Spirit of God, the same word as the Ruach of God, okay, hovers over these waters. If you follow the actual creation story of both of these worlds, which I was going to give you, but I thought that, you know, I might put you to sleep. But if you follow the details carefully, the days of creation work. Stunning. Having then created both worlds, they're both inhabited by one man. The first world, Adam. The second world, Noah. And then what does God do for both of these guys? Well, he brings them animals two by two. He brings the animals to Noah, or to Adam rather, two by two for Adam to name in that first world. And then he brings them two by two to Noah for Noah to save for this world. Just like God blessed Adam, so he blesses Noah. And listen to the language, Genesis 1 verse 28. God says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What does he say to Noah? Genesis 9, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Wow. 
The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Just as Adam, the father of the original world, ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fell into sin. What does Noah do? He plants a vineyard and he drinks from the vine and he gets drunk and falls into sin. And just as Adam, upon eating of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, immediately recognized that he was naked, Noah gets drunk and gets naked. There's a real connection there, isn't there, between drunkenness and nakedness. It's a connection we don't need the Bible to make. It's why we need Christ. But you get the point? Adam needs for God to come along and cover over his nakedness. Parenthetically, how does he do that? He kills innocent animals. So there is an innocent who is dying for the guilty for a covering specifically because he takes the sin having shed its blood, or takes the skins having shed its blood, and then he creates clothes for the man and the woman. It's the gospel. Noah, too, is unable to cover his nakedness. In fact, his, two of his sons take a blanket and they put it on their shoulders and they walk into his tent knowing that he's naked because son number one really did some bad things. And they walk backwards with the blanket, not looking upon their father's nakedness, and they cover it. It's the same story. Then what happens in both stories? In both families, a curse come up, comes upon children. And then in both families, what happens? Genealogically speaking, well, you have a line of people that descend from Adam that worship the true and the living God and a line that don't. Guess what happens with Noah? Same thing. And I can go on, but the point that I'm trying to make is that the world that we live in today follows the same pattern as the world that existed between Genesis 1 and Genesis 7, and I know many of you at this point, if you're still with me, are thinking to yourself, so what? And that's question number three, so don't get out of order with me. (laughs) We're going to get there for a minute, okay? But what did I warn you is all through this message. How did the first world end? Let's just be graphic about it. Sudden, unexpected, cataclysmic judgment that occurred on the day, singular, that Noah entered the ark. Wow. And Jesus Christ, who sees this pattern, in fact, He's authored it, says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days before the flood, as in that prior world, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the singular day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus says, look, follow the pattern, because it will be reproduced here. Sudden, unexpected, cataclysmic, judgment in a day. Now, with that in mind, did you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, for the coming of the Son of Man will be like this. I'm going to return most but not all of the way. 
And on that day, I am not going to bring judgment. Instead, I'm going to rapture all of my people out of the world so that they miss a literal seven years of suffering. And then I'm going to return this time all the way, and I'm still not going to bring judgment. But I'm going to set up a kingdom, and it's going to last a thousand years and so forth. And then finally, at the end of the thousand years, then, well, then I'm going to bring judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. That very day. But it's a day of grace, too, for those who are in the ark. And that's what Peter says as well. You know, you run ahead to 2 Peter 3, and you listen to the language of Peter, and you listen to the question that's asked. See, there's a criticism levied in this passage against Christianity, and it's levied by people who have forgotten about judgment. It's too uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about that. You know, trust me, I feel the weight of that. But listen to what Peter says. He says, this is now, beloved, stop for a minute. Who, who are the beloved? I mean, what, what is he talking about? Well, when you go to chapter 1, he tells you who he's writing to. It's people who have the same faith that he has. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. He says, this is now, beloved, meaning the beloved of the Lord, the second letter that I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's saying, look, I'm writing this letter to remind you of something. Okay, great. What's that? That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. That's the Old Testament. That's their Bible in this day. And the commandment of the Lord and the Savior spoken by your apostles. Well, those are the guys who wrote the New Testament. So he's collecting up the voices of Scripture, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to remind you of something that we all agree on. What is the perspective of the apostles? He's going to give it to us right here. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days of this world that you and I are living in presently, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying what? What's the mocking? Because it becomes the topic. Where is the promise of His coming? Good grief, it has been 2,000 years. Do you think He's had enough time? And that's what He will now address. Where is the promise of His coming? I mean, what what needs to happen between now and then? How is this deal going to play out? And He does it in language that is not poetic, that is not full of images, that is not unclear. He speaks directly to the issue, and he speaks clearly and directly to the issue. He says again, know this first of all, that in the last days of this world that you and I are living in, believers, he's saying, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And then they will add this, and it shows the flaw in their thinking. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation, meaning from Genesis chapter 1. He's saying they're going to come and say, where is this Jesus? I mean, nothing's changed since the world was created at the very, very, very beginning of things. Now, what have they forgotten? Because it's not a comfortable topic. It's not a fun topic. It's not a warm, fuzzy one. Okay, here's a clue. Sudden unexpected, cataclysmic judgment that occurred in one day. On the day that Noah entered the ark and God shut the door. 
And now he points that out. He says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. How did God create the worlds in the very beginning in the creation story? He speaks, let there be light, and there is light. There is authority in God's word. He creates by the word. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and by water through which, meaning through water, the world at that time was destroyed being flooded by water. So they've forgotten completely that the prior world had kind of, you know, I mean, a sort of a significant event. And they've also missed the pattern between that world and this. They've missed both, which is what he says next. He says, but by His Word, meaning by that same Word of God that created all the way back in the very beginning, the present heavens and earth, you know, the one that we live in, are also being, oh man, this is so uncomfortable, reserved for water, no, for fire, but they both clean. And that's the point. Kept for the singular day, not the days, the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. And he says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. And now he's telling us what not to miss. Don't let this go past you, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. He's like, Jesus left on Friday, you know, and it's Sunday afternoon for him. It's 2,000 years to us, but he's not similarly constrained He has a different watch, a different lifetime, and his delay is one of grace. Listen to what he says. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. What promise? The same promise he started with, his promise to return. He's not slow about his promise to return as some count slowness. Where is he? It's been 2,000 years. But instead is patient toward who? Who? Well, who's he writing to? Christians. He's patient toward His people, toward believers, not wishing for any of His people to perish, but for all of His people to come to repentance. What is He saying? He's saying Jesus is not going to return until every person that God has ordained to come to faith in Jesus Christ and find rescue from the judgment that is to come, comes to faith in Christ and finds rescue from the judgment that is to come. God is getting every one of His people throughout history onto the ark who is Jesus Himself. And once the last soul boards the ark, well, the Lord will shut the door. And the Lord Christ will return. And what will that be like? I got to sit down for this. You ready? Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief when you don't expect it, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up just like in the days of Noah. Sudden, unexpected, cataclysmic. What's the word for the day? Judgment in one day. But that's not the only word for today. Hang on to that. 
But again, and I want to say this as nicely and respectfully as I can, what does he not say here? He doesn't say, well, the, the day of the Lord, will it's going to kind of be like this. Jesus is going to return, not all the way, but most. And he's not going to come in judgment. That's not a day of judgment. And it's not his only return. But instead, he's going to take his people. They're going to come out. They're going to be away for seven years. Then he's going to return again, second time, all the way. Still not a day of judgment. Then a thousand. He's speaking clearly and unambiguously, isn't he? And he's laying it out. And he simply says what Jesus says. This world ends the way the previous world ends. And it ends on the day that Jesus returned. But the day of the Lord, he says, will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, question number three, preview, we'll come back to it. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He assumes holy conduct and godliness in his question. Looking for and hastening the coming day of God. Because of which, now he repeats it, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat. And then what does he say? Because it's very significant. He says, but according to his promise, what promise? Same one we've been discussing all the way through. The promise of the return of Christ. What are we, his people, looking for? Safe transport aboard the ark who is Jesus. To what? A new world. A new heaven, a new earth. He says, but according to his promise, that promise of his return, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It will never need to be cleaned. You see? But what is he saying then? He's saying, look, just like this present world that we're living in today was born immediately out of the destruction of that previous world, the next world is going to be born immediately out of the destruction of this particular world. And when does that happen? On the singular day of the return of Christ. No intervening periods or any of that. So, What do I think the Bible is saying then chronologically is going to occur between now and the return of Jesus? And I'm going to throw in question number two as a bonus, okay? What about the rapture? What do you do with it? Because it's all tied up together. Let's think about the rapture first. I've shared this with you in the past, but it's, it's helpful to repeat. One of the things that we have to do when we read the New Testament is we have to, the best we can, to read it with the ears of a first century person. It's written by first century people. It's written to first century people. We need to, the best that we can, understand the customs and the history and, and all of the things that were going on, get into the mindset and the sandals, if you will, of these people and to hear it the way that they heard it. Well, one of the customs dealt with the Roman emperor. You know, the Roman Empire ruled pretty much the world at that point. And the emperor would go off to battle. And then he would return, and he would return to his city. But he wouldn't, you know, come barging through the gates and order up a massage and go sleep in his bath and, or his bed and, you know. He did not do that. He would come back to his city and then he would set up his camp outside the city. And he would send in his heralds who would herald with shouts and 
blasts of trumpets. Does that sound familiar? With the shout and the blast of the trumpet, the heralds will go forth into the city of the king, and they would proclaim, and I'm going to use the word that they used, the euangelion, the gospel, the good news is what it means, of the return of the great and conquering king. And then what would happen in the city? It'd get a fresh coat of paint, man. Everybody'd go out and pick up all their trash and clean up everything and fix everything and make it all nice for the king and set up the, you know, the big banners and welcome home king and we're having a big party and everything is set and made festive and right. It's renewed for the return of the king and then only the citizens of Rome, only the citizens of the king would come out of the city and they would go out to the encampment of their king, the city having been made ready. And then together with their king, they would enter into the city that has been made ready for the return of the king, and they would have a full-on party. When you read rapture, I think you need to think in those categories. So then how does that all play out? Well, I think what the Bible is teaching is that Jesus will return, and it will be sudden and unexpected. So we're not going to know the date. We're going to be surprised, like a thief. I think that His arrival will be announced with the shout of heavenly heralds and the deafening blasts of trumpets as they proclaim the good news, the really good news, of the return of the true King. I think as the New Testament teaches that the dead in Christ will rise from the dead, that together with those of us who are alive at that moment, we will go outside the encampment, or we will go outside this city (laughs) called planet Earth, and we will meet Him in the sky. There's your rapture. There's His encampment. And I think at that point that the Lord God will bring judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment for those who reject Him. It's a day of rescue for those who don't. We're all going to hear the trumpets differently, aren't we? For some, they are a trumpet of liberation, a trumpet from freedom from this world of toils and suffering and sin. For others, they have a very different sound. I think then that the heavens and the earth will be purified with fire and utterly renewed by the one who makes all things new. And I think together with him, we will return as the city of God to the new heavens and the new earth with our king in a full-on party. I think that's it. And that only leaves one question left, and that's the so what question. It starts answering itself at some point, I hope. So what? Well, so what? You know, I I mean, I, I think that if you don't know the Lord Christ, if you've not found Him yet, my prayer is not that you hear this so much as a message of judgment, but also as a message of grace, as a message of the one who stands with His arms open. The door to the ark is like wide open, and it is open to anyone who will come. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, or who you've done it with. 
The Lord Christ offers you forgiveness and life, for he is the one who took the wrath of God that all of us deserve, every single one of us, upon himself on the cross. He gave his life that you might have life that you might find rescue, that you might float safely above the waters of the judgment of God and be transported to that new world. I think that's a so what. I think there's a so what for the rest of us too, that we need to wake up to this reality and begin to live in our world the way that Noah lived in his world. How is that? As a guy who actually believed that the world that he was living in was destined for destruction, that it wasn't the place to invest himself in his life, but he needed to begin to live for another world. And in the creation of that, in his case, which would bring salvation to anyone who would listen, who was basically nobody but his family, unfortunately, such was the state of things. But really... Listen to what Peter says, 2 Peter 3 again, verse 11. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, that's making quite an assumption, but he is making an assumption. He is assuming already that one of the things we'll already be doing before he even gets to the answer to the question is we will be living holy lives. We will be living godly lives. We will be living in such a way as to be sources of light in the midst of a dark and dying world that we will be palpably, noticeably, profoundly different by God's grace, by the work of His Spirit in our lives. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Here it is, looking for and hastening the coming day of God. How? by sharing the mercy and the message of Jesus, by doing everything that we can in the perishing lives that we live and in the perishing world in which we live to get up and get all of God's elect onto the ark. For when the last one boards, the door shuts, the Lord returns, the trumpets blast. And for those who find shelter in Christ, that will be a beautiful horn it will have a beautiful sound. Bottom line, I think the answer to the so what question, you know, I mean, what difference should it make is that it should cause us to live less and less for this world and more and more for the world to come. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus who alone is worthy. We have seen His worthiness in the visions that John gives us. God, in the greater wisdom that He has by which He foresees and brings to pass things. But perhaps nowhere do we see the glory of Christ greater than in the judgment of God which manifests and vindicates the holiness of God, a holiness that we don't even think about but then also on the cross where he comes to a world that deserves him not and where he offers his own perfectly righteous life in the place of perfectly unrighteous sinners like me and everyone here.
And I pray, God, that the language of judgment is tempered by the language of grace, that the message of the fury of the Lord is tempered by the message of the mercy of the Lord. And I ask, God, that you would drill down in our hearts and answer in specifics the so what question for everyone here today. So what now I need to come to Christ, or so what now I need to open up and talk about Christ? So what I need to survey my life and ask myself soberly, which world am I living for? I need to get off of the bench, and I need to get in to the battle alongside Jesus, not against people, heaven forbid, but for them, that they might know the Lord Christ and all of His benefits, and that together with the rest of His people be transported safely to the next world. We pray all of these things for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.